save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 15 of The Black Flemings by Kathleen Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 One afternoon, when he had been at home for several weeks, he and Gay were alone on the rocks. It was again a burning afternoon, but Tom liked heat, and Gabriella's dewy skin still had the child's quality of only glowing more exquisitely for the day's warmth. Sylvia and her mother had gone into Crochester. David was still away. Tom had taken a rather personal tone of late with Gabriella, a tone that the girl found vaguely disquieting. Now he was asking her, half smiling and half earnest, if she had ever been in love. And as he asked it, he put his lean brown hand over hers, as it lay on the rocks beside him. Gay did not look down at her hands, but her heart rose in her breast, and she wriggled her own warm fingers slightly, as a hint to be set free. "'Have I ever been in love?' "'Yes, I think so, Tom.' "'Oh, you think so? As bad as that? A lot you know about it,' Tom jeered good-naturedly. "'If you'd ever been in love, you'd know it,' he added. "'I suppose so,' Gabrielle agreed amiably. "'Well, who is it?' asked Tom curiously. "'David, huh?' Gabriella felt as if touched by a galvanic shock. There was a choking confusion in all her senses and a scarlet color in her face as she said, "'David? David is Sylvia's.' "'Oh, is that so?' Tom asked interestedly. "'I thought so,' he added in satisfaction. And with a long half-whistle and pursed lips, after a moment of profound thought, when his half-closed eyes were off across the wide seas, he repeated thoughtfully, "'Is that so? Say, my coming home must have made some difference to them,' he added suddenly, as Gay did not speak. "'Only in this way,' the girl said quickly, with one hand quite unconsciously pressed against the pain that was like a physical cut in her heart. "'Only in that now he will feel free to ask her, Tom. "'Say!' Tom drawled, with a crafty, cunning look of incredulity and sagacity. "'He'd hate her with a lot of money tied to her, I don't think,' he added good-naturedly. But a moment later a different look, new to him lately, came into his face, and he said more quietly and with conviction, "'I don't know, though. I'll bet you're right.' Immediately afterward he fell into a sort of study, in a fashion not unusual with him. He freed Gabriella's hand, 
crossed his arms, and sat staring absently across the ocean, with his lean body sprawled comfortably into the angles of the rocks, and his Panama tilted over his face. "'I wish to God I knew if I was going to get well and back to sea again,' he said presently, in a fretful sort of voice. Gabriella, who had relievedly availed herself of this interval to shift by almost imperceptible degrees to a seat a trifle more distant, was now so placed that she could meet his eyes when he looked up. She had intended to say to him, as they had all been saying, some comforting vague thing about the doctor's hopeful diagnosis of his illness, and about patience and rest. But when she saw the big, pathetically childish dark eyes staring up wistfully, a sudden little pang of pity made her say instead gently, I don't know, Tom, but you're so young and strong. They all say you will. I'm in no condition to ask a girl to marry me, Tom said moodily. Oh, Tom, Gabriella said, interested at once. Have you a girl? He looked at her as she sat at an angle of the great shaded boulders, with a sort of sea-shine trembling like quicksilver over her. She was in thin, almost transparent white, with a wide white hat pushed down over her richly shining tawny hair, and shadowing her flushed, earnest face. The hot day had deepened the number of shadows about her beautiful eyes. Tiny gold feathers of her hair lay like baby's curls against her warm forehead. Her crossed white ankles, her fine, locked white hands, the whole slender, fragrant, youthful body might have been made for a study of ideal girlhood and innocence and sweetness and summertime. Let me tell you something, the man began in his abrupt way. And he took from his pocket a slim, flat leather wallet, brown once but now worn black and oily, and containing only a few papers. One of these was an unmounted camera print of a woman's picture. She was a slim, dark woman looking like a native of some tropic country, wearing a single white garment, barefooted, and with flowers about her shoulders and head. The setting was of palms and sea. Indeed, the woman's feet were in the waves. She was smiling, but the face was clumsily featured, the mouth large and full, and the expression, though brightly happy, was stupid. The picture was dirty, curled by much handling, "'She's sweet,' Gay said, hesitatingly at a loss. "'Sweet, huh?' Tom echoed, taking back the picture, nursing it in both cupped hands, and studying it hungrily, as if he had never seen it before. "'That's Tana,' he said softly. "'Tana?' "'My wife,' Tom added briefly. And there was no bragging in his tone now. "'She was the sweetest woman God ever made,' he said somberly. "'Your, Tom, your wife?' "'Certainly,' Tom answered shortly. "'Now go tell that to them all,' he added, almost angrily. "'Tell them I married a girl who was part nigger, if you want to.' His tone was the truest Gabriella had ever heard from him. The pain in it went to her heart. "'Tom, I'm so sorry,' she said timidly. "'Is she dead?' "'Yep,' he said, like a pistol shot, and was still." Lately, Tom? Two years, just before I was ill. Gabriella was silent a long time, but it was her hand now that crept toward his, and tightened on it softly. 
and so they sat for many minutes without speaking. Then the girl said, Tell me about her. Tom put the picture away reverently, carefully. For a few dubious minutes she felt that she had hurt him, but suddenly he began with the whole story. He had met Tana when she was only fourteen, just before the entrance of the United States into the war. Her father was a native trader, but the girl had some white blood. Tom had remembered her, and when he was wounded and imprisoned, had escaped to make his way back, by the devious back roads of the seas, to the tropical island, and the group of huts and Tana. And Tana had nursed him, and married him solemnly, according to all the customs of her tribe. And they had lived there in a little corner of paradise, loving, eating, swimming, sleeping, for happy years. And then there had been Tom, little, soft, round, and brown, never dressed in all his short three years, never bathed except in the green warm fringes of the ocean, never fed except at his mother's tender soft brown breast until he was big enough to sit on his father's knee and eat his meat and bananas like a man. There were plenty of other brown babies in the settlement, but it was Toam's staggering little footprints in the wet sand that Tom remembered, Toam standing in sun-flooded open reed doorway, with an oriole about his curly little head. Tom had presently drifted into the service of a small freighting line again, but never for long trips, never absent for more than a few days or a week from Tana and Tom. And so the wonderful months had become years, and Tom was content, and Tana was more than that, until the fever came. Tom had survived them both, laid the tiny brown body straight and bare beside the straightly drawn white linen that covered Tana. And then his own illness had mercifully shut down upon him, and he had known nothing for long months of native nursing. Months afterward he had found himself in a spare cabin upon a little freighter, bound eventually for the harbor of New York. Tana's family, her village indeed, had been wiped out, the captain had told him. The ship had delayed only to superintend some burials before carrying him upon its somewhat desultory course. They had put into a score of harbors, and Tom was convalescent, before the grim, smoke-wrapped outlines of New York, burning in midsummer glare and heat, had risen before him. And Tom, then sick and weary and weak and heartbroken, had thought he must come home to die. But now, after these weeks at home, a subtle change had come over him, and he did not want to die. He told Gabriella, and she began indeed to understand it, how strangely rigid and unlovely and lifeless domestic ideals according to the New England standards had seemed to him at first, how gloomy the rooms at Wastewater, how empty and unsatisfying the life. But he was getting used to it all now. He thought Sylvia was a beautiful young lady, but kinder-proud. Aunt Flora also was okay, and David was, of course, a prince. He's painting, and I don't know what you call it up in my room, Tom said unaffectedly. He had furnished one of the big mansard rooms at the top of the house with odd couches, rugs, and chairs, and sometimes spent the hot mornings there, with David painting beside him. If there was air moving, it might be felt here 
and Tom liked the lazy and desultory talk as David worked. Can he paint good at all? They don't look much like the pictures in books. They are beginning to say, at least some of them do, that he is a genius, Tom. No, it's not like the pictures that one knows, but there are other men who paint that way in his school. He has a school, huh? No, I mean his type of work. I get you, Tom said good-naturedly. I'm glad about him and Sylvia, he added after a thought. Engaged, are they? Well, I suppose they will be. There was an understanding between them. He has something, you know, and Aunt Flora has an income, too. Your father settled something on her when Uncle Will died. Do you suppose it's money that's holding them back? I don't imagine so. I think perhaps it's all the change and confusion and the business end of things. I could fix them up, Tom suggested magnificently. I wish to God, he added, uneasily under his breath and without irreverence, that something would happen. The place makes me feel creepy somehow. It's voodoo. I wish David would marry and take that death's head of an old woman off with him, Aunt Flora. And then I'd like to beat it somewhere. Boston or New York, see some life, theaters, restaurants, that sort of thing. Gabriella did not ask what disposition he would make of herself under this arrangement. She knew. She was down among the flowering border shrubs of the garden on the quiet September day when David unexpectedly came home. The whole world was shrouded in a warm, soft mist. The waves crept in lifelessly, Little gulls rocked on the swells. Trees about Gabriella were dripping softly. Not a leaf stirred, and the birds hopped like shadows, like paler shadows, and vanished against the quiet, opaque walls that shut her in. She and Sylvia had been spending the afternoon upstairs in Tom's study, as his mansard sitting-room was called. The old piano upon which all these young men and women had practiced years ago, as children, had been moved up there now. There was a card table, magazines, books. The electric installation would be begun downstairs in a few weeks, and the whole place wore an unusually dismantled and desolate air. The girls were glad to take their sewing up to the cool and quiet of Tom's study. Flora had been wretched with malaria of late and spent whole days in bed, lying without a book, or even her knitting, staring darkly and silently into space. This afternoon Gabriella had escaped, to scramble for half an hour along the shore, her busy eyes upon the twinkling low-tide life among the rocks, her thoughts a jumble of strange apprehensions and fears. Now she was lingering in the garden, reluctant to surrender herself once more to all the shadows and unnamed menaces of the house, picking a few of the brave bronzinias and the velvet wallflowers, the floating pale disks of cosmos on their feathery leafage were almost as high as her tawny head. She started as David's figure loomed suddenly through the soft veils of the autumn fog close beside her, and laid her hand with a quite simple gesture of fright against her heart. The color, brought by her scrambling walk into her cheeks, ebbed slowly from beneath the warm cream of her skin. Her eyes looked large and childish in their delicate umber shadows. 
david saw the fine frail linen over her beautiful young breast rise and fall with the quickened beat of her heart the soft moist weather had curled her tawny hair into little damp feathers of gold against her temples an ache of sheer pain the pain of the artist for beauty beyond sensing shook him she was youth sweetness loveliness incarnate here against a curtain of flowers and gray mist with wallflowers in her hand and the toneless pink and white stars of the cosmos floating all about her head david gave her his hand and she clung to it as if she would never let it go as if she were a frightened child found at last david thank god you're home she said but you've tired yourself she added instantly concerned you look thinner and you look pale i'm fine he said with his good smile but why did you want me back he asked a little anxiously in reference to her emotion at seeing him oh i don't know things she said vaguely with a glance toward the looming black shape of wastewater netted in its blackened vines things have made me nervous i'm not sleeping well aunt flora looks like a ghost too the man said and gay gave a nervous little protesting laugh don't talk about ghosts but it's only her old malaria david she added frowning faintly i don't know her color looks ghastly and sylvia seems twitchy too what's the matter with us all us all she caught up the phrase accusingly then you feel it too i think i have always felt something of it here it gabriella repeated the monosyllable thoughtfully and as they turned slowly toward the house horror she said under her breath david david can't we all get away we must get away he amended it isn't a good atmosphere for anyone perhaps next summer he stopped sylvia had given him another significant hint a few minutes ago but he dared not ask gabriella to confirm it no he was only a sort of big brother to her she did not need him much now presently she would not need him at all david she said quickly and distressedly when in their slow and fog-shrouded walk they had reached the little alley under the grapevines where gay had seen her mother almost a year ago will you advise me his face was instantly attentive of the sudden plunge of his heart there was no sign gladly dear tom has asked me to marry him david gabriella said their eyes met seriously david did not speak i have known for some time that he would gabriella added with the pleading look of a child in trouble who comes to an omnipotent elder you told him i didn't say no there was a long pause while neither moved a bird unseen in the mist croaked steadily on a raucous note have you promised him gabriella no i couldn't do that but i couldn't say no i tried gabriella went on in a sort of burst and quite unconsciously clinging to david's hands i did try to prevent it david you don't know how i tried he has been talking about it oh since before you went away he told me he liked a girl and he would tell me all about her pretending that she was not i i prayed gabriella went on passionately that it was not i 
Gabriella, I would have spoken to him, saved you all this. No, 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 I know you would, she said feverishly. Aunt Floric would have told him. But, David, we couldn't have that. Why, it would have broken his heart. You see, he's proud, and he feels, feels that there is a difference between us and himself. He has been like a child about this, a child with a wonderful surprise for me. I am to have jewels and travel and cars, everything. If you marry him, David asks slowly. If I marry him. And I like him, David. Ah, truly I do. I feel so badly for him. I feel as if it would be a real, a real life for me, persisted little Gabriella, gallantly feeling for words, to fill wastewater with guests and hospitality and happiness again. I can't bear to have him feel that, poor as I am, and, and nameless, and he knows I am nameless. Still, I couldn't love him. It will make him bitter and ugly, and he'll go off again, and perhaps die. I've had to be kind, to put anything definite off, and so I've said nothing to anybody, not even Sylvia. I've had to, to fight it out alone, finished Gabriella with a trembling lip and swimming eyes, and it has made me nervous. My dear girl, David said slowly, heavily, you're sure you wouldn't be happy? You would be very rich, Gabriella, and you could teach him to make the most of his money. I think it would make Aunt Flora and Sylvia very happy. Gabriella was moving slowly ahead of him toward the house now. She half turned to look at him over her shoulder. David, do you think I should say yes? she whispered. I think perhaps you should consider it gravely, Gay. You say you like him. And what other woman is he ever apt to find that would understand him, or even like him so well? Imagine what harm his money is going to do to him, once he's better, mixing in the world again. All sorts of social thieves will be upon him. That's what I think of, she responded eagerly, so childishly, so earnestly concerned that David felt his heart wrung afresh with a longing to put his arms about her, comfort her kneel at her feet and put his lips to her beautiful young hands. If, if only we can get out of here, she whispered, with another strangely fearful glance at the old house. His affair straightened out. Sylvia and Aunt Flora and I, going somewhere, anywhere. David, we mustn't spend another winter here. And yet now, now, she began again with fresh agitation, I don't know what Tom thinks. He may think indeed, I know he does think, that everything will be as he wishes. What could I do? I couldn't help, and indeed, I didn't say anything untrue. I only told him he must not think of such things until he was much, much better, but he seems to have taken that as a sort of, a sort of consent in a way. Shall I talk to him, dear? Tell him that you need more time? Oh, no, please, David, leave it to me. Sometimes I've been given to understand, he said, with his quiet smile, that a girl feels this way when she really is sure, or when at all events, it develops that the doubt and hesitation were all natural enough, and part of, of really caring. Take time about it, Gabriella. 
money and position do count for something after all and he is a fleming and he knew your mother it isn't added david with a little conscious change in his own tone it isn't the other man of whom you spoke to me last june for a moment gay did not answer then she said in a peculiar voice i've often wondered what you meant by that conversation david whether you remembered it what was it you had consulted aunt flora and sylvia as to my destiny as to the problem of what was to become of me i yes i had written sylvia or no not exactly that david stammered taken unawares and turning red i it was just an idea of mine it came into my head suddenly he added with a most unwonted confusion in his manner as he remembered that bright old dream of a porch on the seaward side of the keyport farmhouse and himself and poor little unwanted illegitimate gay breakfasting there i wrote sylvia about setting her free of a sort of understanding between us david went on with a baffled feeling that his words were not saying what he wanted them to say as a matter of fact a letter from her saying the same thing crossed mine he finished again feeling that this statement was utterly flat and meaningless and not in the least relevant to the talk you didn't say you cared gabriella said very low you simply put it to me as sort of a solution i see now that it was an affront to you gay david answered sorely i have regretted it a thousand times i wanted to offer you what i had but god knows he added bitterly i have nothing to offer so that you would not do it again gabriella said hardly above a breath and breathing quickly yet with an effort to appear careless i would never offer any woman less than love again david answered if i had not been a bungling fool in such matters you should have never been distressed by it you see you did not care for me david the girl reminded him in a low strained voice and not meeting his eyes when they were at the gloomy side door the mist was thickening with twilight and a fitful warm wind was stirring its fold visibly i had been thinking about it for days he said it had i don't know how to express it it had taken possession of me gabriella her shoulder turned toward him flung up her head with a proud little motion tom loves me she said steadily yet david saw that the hand that held the flowers shake and the beautiful mouth tremble tom his half-brother said still unable to shake off the wretched feeling that they were talking at cross purposes would make you a devoted and generous husband gabriella neither spoke again they went into the dark hallway and upstairs and the gloom of wastewater sucked them in and wrapped them about with all its oppressive silences its misunderstandings and its memories end of chapter 15「The weeks that followed seemed to Gabriella Fleming, even at that time when they were actually passing, strangely and darkly unnatural, and afterward they remained a fearful memory in her life. 
long before the tragedy in which they culminated she was quite definitely conscious of some brooding cloud some horror impending over the household she felt herself bound by a strange interior inhibition or by a hundred inherited and instinctive inhibitions from speaking freely from throwing off or attempting to throw off the fears that possessed her outwardly as the serene autumn darkened and shortened into winter the household seemed merely what the return of the air had made it tom invalided restless in love with his cousin gabriella sylvia beautiful and confident as she faced the changed future aunt flora silent coughing with her usual autumn bronchitis moving about the house as the very personification of its sinister history david grave and kindly managing advising affectionate with them all and the staff of kindly old servants duly drawing shades lighting fires serving meals actually gabriella felt sometimes that they were all madmen in a madhouse and vague disturbing thoughts of her own unfortunate little mother would flit through her mind and she would wonder if her own reason would sustain much of this sort of suspense for suspense it was the girl knew not why or what she feared and they all feared but she knew that their most resolute attempts at laughter and chatter somehow fell flat that they glanced nervously over their shoulders when a door slammed and that the shadows and gloom of the half-used old place seemed of an autumn evening when the winds were crying to be creeping from the corners and lurking in the halls ready to capture whatever was young and happy in dark old wastewater and destroy it as so much youth and happiness years ago had been destroyed nowadays she fancied the very voices of the maids as they talked over trays or brooms in the hall took on wailing notes the clocks ticked patient warnings a shattered coal on the fire would make them all jump gabriella with her heart beginning a quick and unreasoning beat would turn off her bath water lest its roaring drown some morning sound would stand poised in a wrapper as if for flight from she knew not what listening listening but it was only october winds sweeping the trees bare of their last tattered banners only the fresh harsh rush of the sea against the rocks and the scream of a blown gull sylvia does it make you feel as if you would like to scream sometimes gay asked one day in the bare sunlight of the garden does what but in sylvia's dark eyes there was perfect comprehension it's almost she added in a low tone as if people did really stay about a place to haunt it that poor little shadow cecily the second mrs fleming who died and your mother and my father and uncle roger and all their passions and all their hates gabriella said in a fearful whisper glancing up at the grim outlines of the enormous pile and all those dusty empty halls and locked rooms to me she went on speaking with her eyes still on the black brick black vine covered house it is all colored by that horrifying experience here in the side lane almost a year ago when i first saw my mother the mere memory of it frightened her she seemed to see again the gray swirls of snow in the shadowy lane the writhing huddled gray figure among the writhing ropes and curtains of white 
"'Gabriella, don't,' Sylvia said quickly, with a nervous laugh. "'No, but Sylvia, you feel it too?' "'Ah, of course I do. Mama's so ill and silent. Tom so strange. David not.' Sylvia's lip trembled, as much as to her own surprise as gaze. "'David is not himself,' she said hurriedly. "'He came back from this trip changed.' Whether it is Tom's return, with all the memories and changes, I don't know. Only, added Sylvia quite frankly, blinking wet eyes, only I have noticed a change in him, just lately, and it has worried me. Perhaps it is only a passing phase for us all, she interrupted herself hastily, one of those wretched times that all families go through, partly weather and partly nerves, and partly changes in sickness and largely wastewater, Gay said, hugging her great coat about her as the girls rapidly walked about the garden. There seems to be an atmosphere about the place stronger than us all. We're all nervous, jumpy. Last night, just as I was about to turn out the light in the sitting room, it seemed to me the picture of Uncle Roger was, I don't know, breathing, looking at me, alive. I almost screamed. And the night after David came back, I picked up his letters. He had dropped them in the hall. And when I knocked on his door with them, he fairly shouted, What's that? And frightened me, and himself too, he told me, almost out of our senses. I don't sleep well, Sylvia confessed. I don't believe any of us do. I don't think we should stay here. If Tom has to go away, she stopped. It was impossible not to assume now that Tom's plans depended upon Gabriella. Yet there was about the younger girl none of the happiness that comes with a flattering and welcome affair. Gabriella instead was quite obviously experiencing a deepening depression and uneasiness. Every day showed her more clearly that Tom considered her bound to marry him, interpreting everything she said and did according to his own cheerfully complacent self-confidence. Her kindness had carried her too far now, for honorable retreat. She could not even get away from wastewater to think in peace, for Tom would not hear of separation. They had known each other long enough. They had considered enough, he said, when Aunt Flora and Sylvia took the apartment of which they were always speaking for the winter. Tom and Gabriella would be married and go south together, go anywhere she wanted to go, but together. Bermuda or Florida or San Diego were all equally indifferent to Tom, as long as he had his wife with him. The very words made Gabriella's blood run cold. It was in vain that she tried to imagine herself married, rich, going about the world as Mrs. Tom Fleming. Every fiber of body and soul revolted. She liked Tom. She would have done almost anything to please him. But somehow the thought of him as her husband made her feel a little faint. Yet how, after all this kindly talk, after these hours of listening, of companionship, suddenly break free? Gabriella dared ask no help. Sylvia or Aunt Flora would only hurt him a thousand times more than she would. Even David's touch could not be trusted here. Besides, she did not feel herself deserving of help or extrication. She had brought this most uncomfortable state of affairs upon herself. 
She had been too kind to Tom. She had let him drift happily into the idea that they cared for each other. The girl began to feel with a sort of feverish terror that she must be free. Free if she had to run away into the world alone. From a distance she could write them. She could explain. But she could not go on in this fashion, with every hour deepening the misunderstanding between herself and Tom, tightening the net. November came in bare and cold, with a faint powdering of snow upon the frozen ground. Suddenly summertime, and shining seas, and sunshine seemed but dreams. Life had become all winter. There would never be warmth and flowers again. Wastewater was bleakly cold. Oil stoves burned coldly, like lifeless red-eyed stage fires in mica and colored glass. The halls were frigid. The family huddled about fires. Tools sounded metallically all day upon the new radiators, that still unconnected, stood about wet and cold and forlorn against the walls. Tom spent most of his days upstairs in his study, where a roaring airtight stove, connected with the old flue, made the air warm. He must start southward soon, they all said, and yet there was no definite plan of a departure. David was still immersed in the business of the estate. Flora was wretched with rheumatism and malaria. Gabriella, of them all, was the least anxious to suggest a change, and so precipitate a settlement with Tom. On the fourth day of the month came the great wind. Keyport and Crowchester, and indeed all the towns along the coast for miles, would long talk of it, would date domestic events from it, the night of the third was cold and deathly clear, with a fiery, unwarming sunset behind somber black tree trunks, and a steely brightness over the sea. Gabriella saw milk-white frost in the upturned clods in the garden. The light was hardly gone when a harsh moonlight lay upon the bare black world. There was a good deal of air stirring in the night, and toward morning it grew so cold that the girls, chattering and shaking, met in the halls, seeking blankets and hot bottles. Gay and Sylvia knocked on David's door. He must take extra covering to Tom. David's teeth clicked, and his laughter had a ghoulish sound as he obeyed. The day broke gray and cold in a hurricane that racked and bowed the trees and bushes, laid the chrysanthemums flat, rattled dry frozen leaves and broken branches on the porches. Whitecaps raced on the gray, rough sea, doors slammed, casements rattled, and at regular intervals the wind seemed to curl about the house like a visible thing, and whined and chuckled and sobbed in the chimneys. Fires were kept burning, and Sylvia and Gabriella, in their thickest sweaters, stuffed the sitting-room window ledges with paper to keep out the straight, icy current of air. The family was at breakfast with the lights lighted, when one of the oldest maples came down with a long, splintering crash that was like a slow scream. During the morning two other smaller trees fell, and whosoever opened an outside door was immediately spun about, and in a general uproar and rattle and flutter of everything inside, was obliged to beg help in closing it. After luncheon, John came in to say that his wife and little girl were so nervous that he was going to take them into Crowchester. He could get the papers. 
"'No,' David said. "'I may walk into Keyport later.' "'You'll never keep your feet on the roads, sir. "'I've never seen such a blow in my life. "'There was great gouts of foam blown far back as the cow barn,' "'John said respectfully. "'I tied up the mill.' "'David only smiled and shrugged, "'and at three o'clock went down to the side door, "'belted into his thick old coat.' Sylvia and Gabriella he had seen a few minutes before, established with Tom and Aunt Flora in the comfortable study far upstairs, where there was a good fire burning. As he slipped out and dragged the door shut behind him, the wind snatched at him, and for a moment he really doubted his ability to make even Keyport less than three miles away. There was a whirlwind loose in the yard, Everything that could bang or blow or rattle or shriek was in motion, and the roar of the sea was deafening. The sun shone fitfully, between onslaughts from clouds that swept across a low iron sky. There had been a cold rush of hail an hour or two before. Ledges and north fronts were still heaped white with it. There was not a boat upon the running high waters of the sea, David, letting himself out at the narrow back gate, saw the waves crashing up against the keyport piers and flinging themselves high into the gray cold air. Wastewater stood upon a point, and there was less uproar on the highway than upon their own cliffs. The wind faced him steadily here, stinging tears into his eyes and pressing a weight like a moving wall against his breast. There was no escaping it. There was no dodging. David bent his head into it, knowing only that the road was hard and yellow beneath his staggering feet. He jumped and shouted as a hand touched his arm, and he saw at his elbow Gabriella's blown and laughing and yet somewhat frightened face. Unsure of her welcome, she caught her arm tightly in his and pushed along gallantly at his shoulder. I couldn't stand it, she shouted above the shriek of the wind. I had to get out. What did Aunt Flora say? he shouted back, moving ahead simply because it was impossible to stand still. She doesn't know. I only told Hedda when I came downstairs, Gay screamed. Well, hang tight, and together they breasted the wall of air. Gay, you were mad to do this, David shouted after a hard mile. "'Oh, I'm loving it,' answered her exulting voice close at his ear. "'I'm loving it, too,' he said, and suddenly they were both human, free of the shadows, able to laugh and struggle, to catch hands and shout again. On their left the sea raged and bubbled. Above them swept the wild airs. Clouds and cold sunshine raced over the world, and the wind sailed with foam and mad leaves.' But perhaps to both the man and the woman, the physical struggle after these weeks of mental strain was actually refreshing. At all events, they reached Keyport, after an hour's battling, in wild spirits. The little town was made weather-tight against the storm, and presented only closed shutters and fastened storm doors to the visitors. Gabriella and David made their way along the main street, catching at knobs and corners, and were blown into the bleak little post office, whose floors were strewn with torn papers and tracked with dried mud. 
the old postmaster eyed them over his goggles with mild surprise as he gave them letters from a mittened hand the place smelled warmly of coal oil and hot metal its quiet dazed them after the buffet of the storm the piers were deserted except for a few anxious gulls that were blown crying above the lashing waves a group of tippeted boys exclaimed and shouted over the tide that had caught the end of river street david guided his companion into keyport's one forlorn little restaurant and they sat at a narrow table spread with steel cutlery and a lamp spotted cloth drinking what gabriella said was the best coffee she had ever tasted you crazy woman david said affectionately watching her as she sipped her scalding drink from a thick cup and smiled at him through the tawny mist of her blown hair he had with some difficulty made arrangements for their being driven back in the butcher's ford at half-past five when the butcher's shop was closed david did not dare risk the walk home in the early dark and gabriella now began to feel through her delicious relaxation a certain muscle ache and was willing to be reasonable so that they had a full hour to employ and they spent it leaning upon the little table sharing hot toast and weak coffee straightening the thick table furnishing setting sugar bowl and toothpick glass over the spots talking 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 as they had never talked before gabriella poured out her troubles like an exhausted child her eyes glowed like stars in the gathering dusk her cheeks deepened to an exquisite apricot pink under the warm creamy colorlessness david watched her listened said little but he began to realize that she was genuinely suffering and depressed and in the end a clean program was planned and david promised to put it into immediate execution gabriella liked tom but not as much as he thought she did she wanted to get away at once tomorrow or day after tomorrow to straighten out her thoughts and to see the whole tangle from a distance very good said david drawing a square on the tablecloth with the point of a fork aunt flora should be told the whole story and gay should go into boston at once to see well to see a dentist she must develop a toothache tomorrow morning or as soon as the storm subsided she could telegraph the nuns tonight and be with them about this time tomorrow when he saw how her eyes danced and how impulsively she clasped her fingers together at the mere notion david was able to form some idea of the strain she had been under oh david to see the streets and and people again to feel that i needn't face tom meanwhile david proceeded with his plan i'll get tom to go off with me somewhere just for a few weeks norfolk maybe or palm beach it may clear up his mind too and perhaps i can explain to him that while you do like him you don't feel quite ready to be any man's wife i can tell him that the thought of it upsets you ah david what an angel you are but then what about sylvia and aunt flora well they can follow you into boston sylvia spoke to me about either doing library work or teaching in some girls school they can be looking about for an apartment but the main point is ended david that you get out of it at once before you make yourself sick 
it seems so cowardly said gabriella fairly trembling in her eagerness and satisfaction no it's not cowardly i suppose it is what all girls feel david said in a somewhat questioning voice before they get married that's just it gay confessed her cheeks suddenly scarlet i don't know what most girls feel and i haven't any mother she paused but david looking at her over his cigarette merely flushed a little in his turn and did not speak but i know this gabriella went on feeling for words and ranging knives and forks and spoons in orderly rows very busily as she spoke i know that what makes me feel so so doubtful about marrying tom isn't isn't being afraid david she struggled on her eyes pleading and her cheeks childishly red it's not being afraid their eyes met across the sorry little board and for a moment the strange look held and neither spoke i have been playing a part with tom gabriella said after a pause and i could go on playing it i could marry him tomorrow and and still like him and be kind to him but david she said in a whisper is that enough i don't know dear david said with a dry mouth you mean that it could be different he added presently that it would be different if it were that other man of whom you spoke to me one day the girl only nodded in answer her eyes fixed with a sort of fear and shame and courage upon his if it were the other man she thought if it were david and at that the mere flying dream of what marriage to david would mean going out into life with david gabriella felt her heart swell until something like an actual pain suffocated her and her senses swam together he sat there unconscious kindly everything that was good and clever handsome and infinitely dear and she dared not even stretch out her hand to lay it upon his his black hair was blown into loose waves his old rough coat hung open his fine dark eyes and firm mouth expressed only sympathy and concern she dared not think what love might do to them i want to be afraid when i married she said i want to feel that i am putting my life into somebody's keeping going into a strange country not just assuming new responsibilities in the old i think i understand david said and feeling that further talk of this sort was utterly unsafe for him and likely to prove only more unsettling to her he proposed that they walk to the whittakers a few blocks away and see how the large and cheerful family was weathering the storm the whittakers mother two unmarried daughters two young sons married daughter with husband and baby were having a family tea that looked enchanting to gabriella and david coming in out of the wind the big room was deliciously warm and mrs whittaker put gay who was a little shy beside her and talked to her so charmingly that the girl's heart expanded like a flower in sunshine mrs whittaker had known gay's poor little mother and both of roger fleming's wives she said that by a curious coincidence she had had a letter that very day from mary rosecrans but you don't remember her of course she said she was a lovely nurse a crochester girl but married now and living in australia let me see nineteen dicky's eighteen 
She must have married when you were only a baby. But I had her when my Dickie here was born, and poor little Mrs. Roger Fleming had her for months and months at Wastewater. Now, Mr. Fleming, are you going to let me keep this child overnight? The girls will take good care of her. Oh, do, said Sally and Harriet in one voice. And the Whitaker baby smiled up innocently into Gabriella's face. And why didn't you do this long ago, Gabriella? They reproached her. You've been home almost a year. Gabriella, kissing the top of the baby's downy head, explained. David thought her more than ordinarily lovely in this group of youth and beauty. Harriet and Sally had been at boarding school, she reminded them, and Mrs. Whitaker had been staying with Anna and the new baby, and then Tom Fleming had come home. Ah, but now, do do this again soon, you dear children, their hostess said, when Gabriella had pleaded that she really dared not stay, having run away for a walk in the wind as it was, and when the butcher's hooded delivery wagon was at the door. And Gabriella went out, clinging to David's arm into the creaking, banging, roaring darkness, with the motherly good-bye kiss warm upon her forehead. The delight of this long afternoon of adventure and the prospect of escape tomorrow kept her laughing all the way home, and even when they got there, she seemed to carry something of the wholesome Whitaker fireside, something of the good out of doors with her into wastewater. But swiftly, relentlessly, the chilling atmosphere of repressions and fear shut down upon them all again. Outside the night rioted madly, and the old house creaked and strained like a vessel at sea. Indoors light seemed to make but a wavering impression on the gloom of the big rooms. Doors burst open, casements shook with a noise like artillery fire, and voices seemed to have strange echoes and hollow booming notes. Once some window far upstairs was blown in, and the maids went upstairs in a flight, exclaiming under their breath and slamming a score of doors on their way. Chilly draughts penetrated everywhere, and the dining-room had a strange earthy smell, like a vault. The girls wore their heavy coats to dinner, and after dinner went up to Tom's study and built up the fire until the airtight stove roared and turned a clear pink. Tom lay on his couch. He had been oddly moody and silent tonight. Gabriella played solitaire, talking as she played. Sylvia scribbled French verbs in the intervals of the conversation. David and Aunt Flora had been with them until something after nine o'clock. Then Flora had somewhat awkwardly and heavily asked him to come down with her to the sitting-room. She wished to talk to him. This was a common enough circumstance, for business matters were constantly arising for discussion. But her manner was strange tonight, Gabriella thought, and the girl's heart beat quickly as they went away. Now David would tell her that she, Gabriella, wanted to go into Boston for a few days. Perhaps he was telling her now. A quiet half-hour went by, and then Sylvia stretched herself lazily and admitted that she was already half-asleep. Tom had been lying with half-shut eyes, but with a look so steadily fixed upon Gabriella that the girl was heartily glad to suggest that they all go downstairs. There had been something sinister, something triumphant and yet menacing in that quiet, unchanging look. 
She had met it every time she looked up from her cards, and it had finally blotted everything but itself from her thoughts. Tom rose obediently, and Sylvia folded his rug for him, and went about straightening the room. The girls were accustomed to perform small services for Tom, who really was not strong enough to be quite independent of them yet. All three went downstairs together, Gabriella loitering for a few minutes in Sylvia's room, not so much because she had anything to say, as because the nervousness and the vague apprehension that possessed her like a fever made her fear her own company. When she turned back into the hall again, Gabriella was surprised to see Tom standing in his doorway. "'Did I leave my pipe upstairs?' he asked in an odd voice. "'Oh, did you, Tom?' Gabriella asked, eagerly, always glad to be useful to him. The more so as she found it more and more difficult to be affectionate. "'No, let me, let me,' she begged, taking the candle from his hand. I'll not be two minutes. Again, she remembered afterward, he was smiling his odd, triumphant, yet threatening smile. But he said nothing as she took the lighted candle and started on the long way upstairs to the study. Guarding the candle in the savage currents of air that leaked everywhere through windows and doors, Gabriella had to move slowly, and in spite of herself the swooping darkness about her, the wild racket of the storm outside, and the shadows that wheeled and leaped before her frail little light made her suddenly afraid again. She was desperately afraid. David, Sylvia, all the human voices and hands seemed worlds away. Tom's study was two floors above Gabriella's room, three above his own, and in a somewhat unused wing. The wind, in this part of the house, was singing in half a score of whining and shrieking voices together, and there was a thunderous sound, of something banging, booming, banging again with muffled blows, as if, Gabriella thought, the house had gotten into the sea, or the sea into the house, and the waves were bursting over her. Just as she reached for the handle of the study door, her candle went out, and Gabriella, with a pounding heart, groped in the warm blackness for the table and the matches and the blessed light again. She was only a few minutes away from the protection and safety of the downstairs room, she told her heart, just a light and a half moment of finding the pipe again, and then the swift flight downstairs, anyhow, any fashion, to get downstairs. Her investigating hands found the brass box of matches, she struck one and held it with a shaking hand to her candle. There was no glow from the stove now, and the feeble light broke up inky masses of darkness. The square mansard windows strained as if any second they would burst in. A charge of howling wind swept by the window, swept on like a herd of bellowing buffaloes into the night. Gabriella, holding her light high, the better to search the room for the pipe, and swallowing her fears resolutely, turned slowly about and stopped. She thought she screamed, but she made no sound. There was a man standing behind her, and smiling at her with an odd, sinister smile. But it was not that alone that froze her into terror as cold as death, that held her motionless where she stood, like a woman of wood. It was that the man was Tom. Well, what's the matter? Tom asked, slowly and easily. 
his voice restored gabriella to some part of her senses and she managed a sickly smile in return you frighten me gabriella answered her heart still pumping violently with a shock and with a sort of undefined uneasiness bred of the dark night and the howling wind and her solitariness far up here in the lonely old house tom had lighted the lamp sit down he said i want to talk to you oh tom it's after ten gabriella said fluttering well what of it here he pushed an armchair for her and gabriella sat down in it and blew out her candle tom opened the stove dropped wood and paper inside and the wind in the chimney caught at it instantly with a roar i wanted to talk to you tom added without sylvia or any of the others around they're always around one of them would be welcome now gabriella thought in a sort of panic for tom's face looked stern and strange and there was a rough sort of finality expressed in his manner that was infinitely disquieting she did not speak she sat like a watchful bright-eyed child following his every word and every movement tom would not hurt her tom would not kill her said her frightened heart here's what i want to know gabriella he began abruptly when he had taken a chair close to her own what's the idea you know all about me you can't keep up this stalling forever you know stalling gabriella faltered bluffing kidding you know what i mean the man elucidated shortly i'm getting kind of tired of it he added warming i'm getting damn tired of it you know what i think about you and you ought to know that i'm not the kind of man that lets anybody else walk off with my property you're mine ain't you you're mine tell me that his manner had grown so alarming so actually threatening that gabriella drew back a little in her chair and her great eyes were dilated with a sort of terror as she answered placatingly you you know i like you tom yes and i've had about enough of that sort of thing tom answered harshly i've had enough of that kind of of course i like you let me think about it you can make up your mind now you're going to marry me and soon too i'm going to tell them all tomorrow morning and you and i'll go into boston some day next week and get married and then when you want to go off with some other man for the whole afternoon and come back laughing and whispering you can ask me about it first why tom gabriella said with a frightened smile you're not jealous yes i am i'm damn jealous he answered roughly catching her wrist and drawing her to him without leaving his seat i want you you've as good have said you'd marry me a hundred times i've got money enough to give you everything in god's world you want you can't go back now on all you said you can't keep on bluffing and putting me off like a kid tom please the girl stammered on her feet and trying to free her hand you never did this before he stood up still holding tight to her wrist and caught her in the grip of an iron arm no he said in a low voice i never did this before but there's no reason i shouldn't kiss my girl what are you afraid of his big left hand gripped her cheeks 
and he turned her face up to his and kissed her violently, more than once, a dozen times. Gabriella, smothered, frightened and struggling, pushed at his breast with all the strength of her young arms. The opposition seemed to enrage Tom, for he only held her tighter, his superior height as well as strength giving him all the advantage. "'Tom,' the girl panted, "'I shall call.' call he answered easily and smiling and the wild scream of the winds whirling over the high roofs of waste water seemed to echo the contemptuous note of angry laughter in his voice no but tom please please ah well that's better now you say please do you now you're not quite so cold tom muttered kissing her hair and forehead and raising the two hands he had caught tightly in one to kiss the fingertips now you'll not be so cool putting me off asking for time huh kiss me Kay. you love me don't you she would be out of it all tomorrow safe with the quiet nuns in boston gabriella reminded herself if she could but get away now down to lights and voices, into the peace of her own room, and tomorrow away. Tom, I can't talk to you while you frighten me so. Why, what are you afraid of? he asked, very slightly releasing her, his black eyes seeming to devour her, and his breath in her face. I'm not going to hurt you. I just wanted you to know that I'm tired of your holding me off, of having you tell me that, of course you like me, and all the rest of it. "'You're going to marry me next week, aren't you?' he asked harshly. Gabriella held herself as far away from him as the iron grip about her shoulders permitted, and rested her hands perforce upon his shoulders. "'Tom, you will be ill,' she began pleadingly. "'Cut that stuff out,' he commanded, his face darkening. "'You give me your word to marry me next week, and I'll let you go.' the convent tomorrow, the safe bordered walks and walled gardens, the chapel, the refectory, the quiet footsteps and pleasant voices. Tom, don't be angry with me. Of course I will. Of course I will, if... You'll not sneak to Aunt Flora and say Tom scared it out of you and get David to talk me off. The girl was silent during a second in which she sought words but he saw the flicker of self-consciousness in her eyes, and instantly his fury returned again. "'Promise me, as God is your judge.' "'Swear it,' he said in a low voice that shook with a passionate effort at control. "'Swear it, or I swear I'll—' The rest was lost. Gay was smothered in his arms again, her whole body bent backward so that she staggered in the struggle to keep her feet her jaw caught in the grip of his hard fingers, and her lips stinging and burned and hurt under his kisses. The rich coil of her hair was loosened and fell in a web upon her shoulders, and through her choked throat and crushed mouth her voice came thickly, "'Tom! Tom! For God's sake! David!' And suddenly, above the wild envelopment of the wind, she heard her name shouted in answer, "'Gabriella!' The girl screamed hysterically as the door was flung open, and the lamplight swooped and flared in the gust from the hall, and David, white and shaking, came in. Then there was a pause. 
Tom dropped his arms, and Gabriella crossed to David, and, quite automatically, and without moving his eyes from Tom, David put his arm about her and Gabriella laid one hand upon his shoulder and hid her face wearily against his breast and clung there, as he had seen a storm-blown gull cling to some chance-found shelter, without moving, without seeing, without sound. Tom stood beside the table upon which he rested one big knotted hand. His hair was in disorder, his head hung forward menacingly, like the threatening jowl of a bulldog. He was the first to speak. "'Well, Dave, you can keep out of this,' he said in a slow, measured voice. "'She's going to marry me. She promised me tonight, didn't you, Gabriella? Tell him so. Tell him you promised me.' "'What's?' Tom's voice, under David's steady look, and opposed to the strange silence in the storm-bound room, and the strange and awful paleness of David's face, faltered slightly and became less confident what's the trouble he said shall we talk about this tomorrow tom david said in a constrained tone no by god we'll talk about it now tom answered i may be sick or i may have been sick for that's more like it but you've no need to talk to me as if i were a baby david gabriella breathed against his breast i'll not leave you dear he answered very low, his lips against the tawny hair. "'Tom, old boy, shall we go downstairs? We're all nervous and upset tonight. I've got to talk to you.' "'Tell him you're going to marry me, Gay,' Tom said savagely, without altering his position or seeming to see David. "'No, Tom,' David said, strangely and sadly. "'You can't. I'm sorry, Tom. But you too, you too.' He went on stammering and looking from Gay's face to the other man's with infinite pity and distress. You can't marry her, Tom, now or ever. I've... I've got something to tell you that will make a difference. By God, you can't tell me anything that will make a difference, Tom said, deep in his throat, still in the same position and without moving his eyes. You keep your hands off her. Keep out of my affairs. David... Don't be angry with him, Gabriella pleaded. Don't be angry with him. It's partly my fault. It's partly my fault. Angry with him, David echoed. My dear Gay, Tom, you mustn't be angry with me. Aunt Flora just told me something, Tom. Gay's father is not the man named Charpentier, as we had all believed. Uncle Roger never knew it, but Gay is your half-sister, Tom. "'Born in the year after you ran away, "'when he was hunting all over the world for you.' "'What are you talking about?' Tom said in a terrible voice. "'Gabriella, her face ashen in the lamplight, "'was staring at David with dilated eyes. "'Now through her parted lips she breathed with utter horror. "'No, David, no.' "'It's true,' David said simply. "'There's a curse upon the place, I think.' and upon us all. It has killed them, one after the other. It is killing Aunt Flora now. Gay, Tom, old fellow, we have to pay with the rest. You must believe it. Your brother and sister, Tom. Then for a long time there was silence in the room. Who told you that? 
tom asked then in a sharp sneering voice that cut through the unbroken stillness and the surrounding tumult of the storm and instantly he added in a changed tone look out for her david she's falling gabriella indeed with a long deep sob that ended with a sigh had pitched against his shoulder david caught her in his arms her eyes were shut and her whole body hung limp her beautiful tawny hair falling free help me get her downstairs tom david said everything else forgotten brushing the silky tawny tangle from her face and taking her in a firmer hold open the door tom slowly and watching him as if he were under some enchantment moved to obey the lamp flared again a blast of wind whined and sang about the windows and the casement burst open with a wild shout of streaming air extinguishing the light and careening loose papers noisily about in the darkness but tom and david neither saw nor cared the opened hall door had shown the lonely passage outside lighted with a sickly pinkish glow that flickered on the weather-stained walls and sent lurching shadows along the passage above the creaking and crashing of the hurricane and the howling of the gale and the sea in the dark night they could hear now a brisk crackling and the devouring sound of red lips of flame the wind that instantly rushed upon them brought the acrid taste of smoke and even in their first stupefied look they saw a detached banner of fire blow loose far down the long hallway toward the stairs and twist on the wind a moment like a blown handkerchief and lose itself in a thick rolling plume of approaching smoke tom slammed the door shut behind them they were in the hall fire he shouted by god the old place is on fire end of chapter sixteen chapter seventeen of the black flemings by kathleen norris this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seventeen she's all right she opened her eyes a few minutes ago she'll be all right the voice was droning away close to her ear in the howling noise and blackness gabriella made an effort to think and to move her head but her senses all reeled together in a sort of vertigo and her temples hammered as if they would split she relapsed into blackness again david's voice of course she had fallen from a great height she supposed for she was lying in some bitterly cold place out of doors the sea never sounded so close inside beyond and above the sound of the sea breaking on the rocks was a constant rushing of high winds and the creaking and dashing of bare branches and there was another sound of sucking and roaring deep crashes like the cascading of bricks no no she's all right she's coming around this was that droning voice david's voice then a mutter of other voices hedda's saying something about china john's the gardener's voice telling someone to hoist it over there i feel like bill the lizard gabriella thought finding the idea very funny and immediately beginning to cry and she opened her eyes brimming with tears and looked into david's anxious face close above her own against a background of red lights and shadows dizziness overcame her 
and she shut her eyes again, but not without a bewildered and weary smile that tore at the man's heart. And then there followed another period of utter darkness, during which she could not quite tell if the roaring and crackling were inside or outside of her head. Suddenly she remembered. They were in Tom's study, she and Tom and David, and David had come up to say, and Gay instantly sat upright and looked at David with wild and frightened eyes. She wore the velvet gown in which she had dined, such endless ages ago, and about her, as she half lay in David's arms, a heavy blanket had been wrapped. David's face was grimed and sooty, and in the queer lurid light in the summer-house she could see that it was anxious and pale. They were in the summer-house, that was it. But why should they be here upon this bitter wild night, and whence came the queer pinkish glow that was lighting the black garden and bare trees in so unnatural a way? John and Trudy were draping great curtains. Were they the old library curtains, against the latticed walls? Outside, the closely set evergreen shrubs and the lee of the north wall combined to give the summer-house a sort of protection. "'Gabriella, dearest,' David said. And she felt a hot tear on her face, and put up her finger to touch it wonderingly. "'You're all right, dear,' he added tenderly and then to someone in the gloomy confusion of old twisted benches and rickety rustic tables behind him she's all right sylvia tell aunt flora she's all right gabriella heard a thick fretful murmur in answer and asked in a child's odd whisper is aunt flora sick frightened david said in answer and you fainted dear tom and i got you down by the kitchen stairway Recollection was beginning to come back rapidly now, and Gay frowned faintly with the pain of it as she said, Tom, you came up. I remember now. But, David, was that true? All true, dear. But don't think about it now, David said. And Gabriella closed her eyes for what seemed a long time again. The man her poor little mother had loved had been Roger Fleming. Roger was her father. Does Tom believe it? the girl whispered, after a while. "'Oh, yes. He is very, very fine about it, Gay,' David said. "'There will be no arguing, no trouble for you, dear. Can you, can you, not worry about it?' But David, she was more like herself every minute now, and spoke with a voice full of its own peculiar vitality. "'What happened?' "'Fire, dear. Waste water's going, Gabriella.' In an hour the old place will be gone. Wastewater, she echoed in a whisper, and for the first time she turned her eyes toward the source of the glow. Three hundred yards away, and lighting up the whole black world upon the wild winter night, the old house was one roaring mass of flames. Tom, the girl asked instantly, did he, he was with us, did everyone? Everyone is safe, dear. Some of the maids had gone into Crochester when John took in his wife. The others are here. Sylvia was the coolest of all. She was asleep, but she had time to grab some clothes, got out easily. Aunt Flora was in the downstairs sitting-room, where I had left her. She's here. I think the shock has been terrible, but she is safe. You fainted, seemed to come to just as we got you down here and then fainted, 
or went off into a sort of swoon again. But now you feel all right? Perfectly, even my head. But, David, I want to see Tom. Tom, he was with John and the girls, saving what they could, until it was too late. But he's here now. Tom, David said, raising his voice, and immediately Tom, who had been with the group of maids in the doorway, watching the fire, turned and came toward them. He was grimed and sooty, his black hair tossed about wildly, and he had a great overcoat on. Gabriella saw the look on his handsome face, half desperate, half shamed, all questioning, and as he knelt before her, with a sudden impulse she opened her arms and laid her wet face against his own. Tom tightened his own arms convulsively about her, and for a long minute they clung together. "'Is it all right?' Gabriella whispered. And Tom, gently putting the silky tangled web of her disheveled hair back from her earnest face, answered, "'We got you out, huh?' "'Tom,' she said, clinging to him, and looking into his face anxiously, "'I'm so glad. I've never had anybody of my own.' "'Are you?' he said awkwardly, yet pleased in a low, gruff tone, as she stopped. "'You've got a brother now, huh?' he added, with a sort of clumsy lightness. For answer, still resting her pale and soot-streaked cheek against his own, she tightened her arm about his neck, and he felt her breast move on a deep sigh, half of weariness, half of content. And David saw his half-brother very reverently, very gently, kiss her upon her closed eyes. "'The wind straight out of the northwest,' Tom said. Then, in a significant tone to David, "'The whole place is bound to go. Nice thing if we'd gotten him into John's house, like you suggested.' "'No, you were right about that,' David conceded, as Gay, smiling bewilderedly, and still a little dizzy, got to her feet. "'John tells me the barn roof has caught.' "'South wing, sir, everything. "'My God, she's doing it up in style now,' Walker, the chauffeur, said, from the group of watching maids and men in the summer-house doorway. All the night was lighted by the demonical glare. Banners of flame were being blown and twisted like rags upon the shrieking winds. "'Keep this blanket about you, Gay, and over your head.' David commanded as they joined the others. "'Good-bye, Wastewater,' he added under his breath. "'Do you see that the library wing has collapsed already? "'You're looking straight across at the woods beyond. "'She's going like tinder. "'David, but surely that's the library wing, burning now, the highest point of all. "'No, that's the very center of the house. "'That's about where Uncle Roger's old rooms were.' There, that's your corner, where that jet of fire blew out. That wall will go next. Gabriella shuddered and shivered with the cold. Mother seems broken, Sylvia said at Gay's shoulder. She loved the old place. There's going to be a change in the wind, Tom muttered. That river of sparks may be turned this way. A change in the wind? Gabriella echoed, incredulously for to deduce any hint of a change from the furious gale that was blowing so strongly seemed miraculous to her. Even now the rush of air was so furious that they had almost a shout at times to be heard. 
somewhat sheltered in the black old shabby doorway of the long unused summer house gabriella felt david's arm tight about her shoulders was he conscious of it she did not know but she was exquisitely aware of it even under her vertigo weariness and excitement and so reinforced she might have endured a score of such wild nights they all stood in the shelter exclaiming and looking over each other's shoulders at the fearful conflagration that was sending great whirls and showers of sparks far up against the black winter sky flora alone made no move she was rolled in what appeared to be a miscellaneously chosen half-dozen of blankets a seventh rolled to pillow her head she sat in the summer house's one chair an old wicker armchair with her bare head dishevelled and dropped back and her eyes closed in a leaden face that even in the hideous light of the fire looked death-like this night's work will kill her hedda whispered once glancing over her shoulder at her mistress and trudy solemnly nodded the flames of waste-water swept southward howling like fiends as they flung themselves up into the dark crowded always from their places as waves are crowded onward by fresh roaring surges of fire where there had once been attic or mansard rooms in waste-water there were now pits where pink flames burned under a play of dancing blue lights at intervals of only a few minutes fresh portions of roofs and floors collapsed and the maids would exclaim under their breath as the fresh grinding and sucking and devouring began there won't be a wall left tom said and she's not been burning an hour tom it must be almost morning gabriella whispered too dazed with the night's events to believe herself yet awake in answer he twisted his wrist about and in the pink light she saw the tiny face of his watch not yet one o'clock what i can't understand david said is why five hundred men aren't here from keyport or crochester of course there's a terrible tide and that road through the dunes to tinsels may be under water but you'd think a mob would be out here to watch the old place go you mean they might have saved it david sylvia asked shuddering with cold and nervousness as she wrapped herself in her blanket and stood huddling at his side oh no nothing could do that he said not even with all that water within a few feet he added with a shrug toward the sea that's the end of wastewater david we were all way upstairs did you and tom get me down the stairs gabriella asked presently that's one of the things we'll talk about tomorrow david said but immediately he added quietly tom saved us all my instinct was to rush away from the flames his being a sailor was to get through them and if we had run away i believe we would have been trapped hedda tells me the only stairway in the far wing where i would have gone has been locked for years tom got us back of the wind by crossing the upper hall and we climbed over that strip of roof to the old sewing-room and broke the window and after that it was easy down the kitchen stairway the fire was coming where straight up that main stairway as if it were a furnace and did we cross near it david hesitated and tom on gabriella's other side said gruffly not very gabriella shivered 
and for a while they all watched the fire in silence. John's wife and little girl and Daisy and Sarah went into Crochester yesterday, David presently explained. It seems that John saw it first. It started in the billiard room wing. We think it may have been something the electricians did, or perhaps just rats and matches. John saw one of the windows all pink from his room, but he thought probably some of us were down there, and actually went to bed. But after fifteen minutes or so he got up and looked out again. My God, my heart turned to water, John himself said, simply as David paused. The fire was bursting out of a dozen windows at once. She must have been burning since late afternoon to get that start. I yelled for Frank, the Italian, and Walker, and we all run into the house. Seemed to me we'd never rouse the girls. We sleep, Hedda said gravely. They ran up and waked Aunt Flora, David added, and got her out here. She was still in the sitting-room. And Sylvia had the presence of mind to grab a sheet full of clothes and things. The maids got out some china, and all the blankets that were in the store closet, and their own trunks. But there won't be much saved, he finished, shaking his head. Comfort to think that if there were five hundred men here, we couldn't have saved it. After long silence broken only by exclamations of horror and concern, as the flames had their way, Hedda said again softly, This'll kill Mrs. Fleming, all right. Sylvia had gone back into the summer-house and was leaning over her mother. They could hear Flora's feeble, hoarse murmurs in reply to the girl's tender inquiries. Gabriella felt again that there would be no end to this fearful blackness, wind, noise, and confusion of body and soul. An hour later there were shouts in the garden. A motor-car rattled in, driven, already with a strange disregard for what had been the stately boundaries of wastewater, straight over the ashy garden. It was the keyboard carpenter, with fifteen or twenty excited young men hanging on his car. The high tide had washed out a hundred feet of the road, he announced. Couple hundred people watching the fire from the other side, in spite of the wind. Some fire, said Harry Truman. He had had to drive twelve miles out of his way to get here at all. He added cheerfully that he had thought he might find the whole family burned to cinders. A stiff wind was still blowing, but its violence had enormously abated. The air was warmer every instant, and the fire, less than four hours after it had been discovered, had done its work, and had actually been blown out, against many a shattered remnant of black wall. Here and there it was still gnawing hungrily, sucking like a vicious and unsated animal among ruins, that by its dying light the Flemings could barely recognize as the library, the old downstairs playroom, the office. Now it was safe to move the women to what was left of John's house. The windmill, collapsing, had inundated the lower floor, and one side of the house had been caught by the flames but on the south side a bedroom, dining-room, and kitchen were intact, and Gabriella and Sylvia found a lamp and turned down the bed where John's little Etta had slept for most of her fifteen years. Etta's innocent little trophies, Miss Alcott's books, pencil-boxes, and hand-painted cups, were ranged neatly about. Flora, muttering, 
was lowered tenderly into the sheets, and the blankets and little blue comforter spread over her. No further danger from the fire. The worst was over. Rain was now sluicing as gently, as steadily and calmly over the wreckage as if the night of horror had only been a dream, as if Gabriella might awaken in her comfortable big bed, as she had so often awakened, to look out upon a typical autumn sky and sea, a nameless little poor relation in wastewater's splendid walls. But now, wearied, confused, puzzled as she was, she knew that wastewater itself had not disappeared from the earth more completely than that old Gabriella. If she had not a name, a place in the world, she had a brother. And to Gabriella this utter earthquake was like the presage of a more sunshiny and smiling morning than she had ever known. Downstairs in John's dining room, sacred hitherto to golden oak and tasseled plush, was heaped the incongruous salvage from wastewater. Soup plates and cups filled with blackened water, chairs with sooty footprints upon the brocades, kitchen utensils and pots, books that had been useless and unread for sixty years, and that were so much rubbish of paper, paste, and leather now, the shade of a lamp standing alone, and another great lamp without its shade just such miscellaneous maids chauffeur and gardener had been able to snatch and carry away by the light of the fire itself gabriella and tom worked valiantly at storing this mixed assortment at one side of the room john lighted a coal fire in his own grate and hedda and trudy toiled kitchenward extricating a coffee-pot from the crushed and saturated kitchen and finding among etta's neat stores all the necessities for a meal which was served in the dining-room at about four o'clock. Sylvia was now upstairs with her mother, and David called Gabriella aside and with a grave face advised her to go up to her cousin. She gathered a good deal from Aunt Flora's muttering, Gay, and I've just been explaining things to her. Poor Sylvia, it's come like a thunderbolt to her. Suppose you go up and tell her we want her down here, that we're having some coffee." Gabriella went up obediently. The lamp in young Etta's bedroom was shaded now, and Flora seemed asleep. Sylvia was sitting in the shadow, but Gabriella saw that she had been weeping. She rose at once and followed Gabriella into the little upper hall, and Gabriella put her arm about her. Sylvia seemed confused and shaken. She said in a worried quick tone, "'Mama is very, very ill.' David tells me he thought she was, even before she had the shock of the fire. I feel as if I were in a terrible dream. I can't believe what he tells me, added poor Sylvia. I can't. I shall never believe that my mother could be, could be capable. My mother, whom I love so dearly. She stopped. It doesn't mean that one can't love one's mother, Gabriella suggested timidly. You'll feel better when you've had some rest and some coffee. She did it to protect Uncle Roger. We always knew she loved him. Oh, gracious, how little you understand! How little anybody understands! Sylvia explained under her breath in despair. You tell me that I needn't stop loving her, and David tells me that it makes no real difference in my own life, as if I could as if I could go on living, and believing that my mother had been, 
sylvia's voice deepened had been living a lie all these years she finished suffocating i tell you i simply couldn't bear it i'm wrong perhaps it's all just pride perhaps but i never could look anybody in the face again never hold up my head sylvia do come downstairs gay pleaded it isn't as bad as that really it isn't oh what do you know gabriella sylvia exclaimed impatiently you think being the child of a nobody i suppose is much the same as being uncle roger's own daughter i would rather have the name of sharp and jay honorably than any name as i have it gay answered proudly and shortly as you have it sylvia echoed i don't believe you still understand she added bewilderedly in a lower tone and was still she let gabriella guide her downstairs and slipped into her place at the improvised table quietly not looking up nor tasting the solids although she drank her hot coffee gratefully david could we possibly get mamma into a doctor to a sanitarium she asked presently in a low voice john and walker have gone round the long way to crochester for the doctor david said glad to talk the road's washed out you know they ought to be back in another hour and then we can tell something she looks like death sylvia said with suddenly trembling lips i think it is only shock david answered gabriella warmed and lulled by the food and fire had dropped her beautiful disheveled head against the back of her chair tom had flung himself upon the little sofa and was already asleep david replenished the fire and he and sylvia sat watching it sometimes exchanging a few words or sometimes going upstairs to look at the invalid who seemed to be sleeping the doctor came and went at five without waking either tom or gabriella a cold dawn was over the world when the girl stirred under her heap of comforters and sat up blinking and rosy wondering for a long stupefied minute where she was and why tom should be stretched out sound asleep a few feet away margaret had come out from keyport john's wife and daughter were lamenting and sympathizing in the disordered kitchen and two or three score of sightseers were already picking their way about the ruins of what had been wastewater gay going out with tom just as the winter sun rose dazzling and clear and feeling strangely stiff and stupid looked about her in blank amazement where the house had stood for more than a century was only a singed and hideous stretch of wreckage now heaps of blackened bricks tumbled masses of half-burned plaster and mortar twisted pipes glistened wet in rain the whole smelled acridly here and there some hidden heap of wood or paper smoldered sullenly the garden paths had been partly obliterated by fallen walls trees were down and ashes coated the leafless rose trees and the evergreens the sea was rolling gaily in the sunrise emerald green flecked cheerfully with white gulls were dipping and arching the fresh clean peaceful air was tainted acridly with the smell of wet burned ruins the day was so crystal clear that gabriella could see the tiny figures of men going out under white sails at keyport and at crochester when between david and tom with her hair twisted up into a great coil and one of john's coats buttoned about her 
she walked slowly about the incredible desolation of the walls the villagers drew back a little and eyed the family curiously pretty tough welcome home tom one of the younger men said shyly but heartily sympathetic oh that's all right tom said with a nod dead loss eh asked an older man interestedly making a tut-tutting sound nope some insurance tom admitted but the other merely shook his head and made the same pitying shocked sound again when they walked past what had been the sitting-room tom climbed over a mass of bricks and kicked free with his foot a segment of charred and soaked frame to which a tattered strip of canvas stiff with paint still clung remember this he asked david and gabriella looked at it nodding there were but a few useless inches of it left but they could see it had been a painting still to be seen was a finely executed hand a man's hand laid upon the head of a beautiful greyhound uncle roger david said gravely my father said tom and mine gabriella added softly a warm young vital hand in david's her beautiful eyes not raised from this tragic little last glimpse of the splendid and victorious black fleming of wastewater end of chapter seventeen Chapter Eighteen, Part One of the Black Flemings by Kathleen Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen, Part One. The doctor returned with another doctor in the course of the strange, disorganized day, and Etta, murmuring with the other maids in the kitchen, sucked in a great sigh as she escorted them upstairs. Poor Mrs. Fleming would be a long time getting over this night's work she and hedda and trudy said over and over again while the professional men were in consultation sylvia who had been lying down went upstairs with them gabriella waiting restlessly for their opinion almost immediately after they had come down however david called her she went out of the dining-room to find him on the stairway gay dear aunt flora wants to see you his tone frightened her she's not very sick we hope not dear but they are not satisfied they give no hope sylvia's making her some broth now she wants to see you and me and tom but david we can get her into boston can't we didn't hedda say something about an ambulance this afternoon it's a question of whether the roads are passable they're discussing that now a great awe fell upon gabriella as she went up to the crowded little bedroom she could see nothing except aunt flora lying straight in the girlish little bed with its paper and ribbon souvenirs tied to the white enamel bars aunt flora looking sunken-cheeked and ghastly and living only in her restless and tortured eyes how do you feel now david said cheerfully sitting down beside the bed and patting her hand she did not smile but she moved her eyes to his face and fixed them there sylvia was at one side of the bed david and tom took chairs at the foot and gabriella quite naturally sank to her knees beside sylvia so that the two girls faces were close to flora's it was afternoon now a steely clear winter afternoon at about four o'clock 
and to gabriella's worried senses no hour in the strange twenty-four hours since she and david had walked in the great wind to crochester seemed more strange or unreal than this one aunt flora lying here grizzled dressed in one of the plain nightgowns of john's wife's and surrounded by little etta's keepsakes tom serious and still oddly disheveled and disorderly from the long night and the day's broken rest sylvia pale and with new and tragic deeps in her dark eyes and david as always the balance wheel that seemed to keep them all steady flora moved her solemn gaze to gabriella's face i am very sick she whispered oh aunt flora you'll feel so much better when you get into a comfortable hospital gabriella said gently infinitely distressed no the sick woman said shaking her head they'll not move me david told you and tom something yesterday she added wearily shutting her eyes and hardly moving her lips you should have known it long ago you and tom are angry at me oh aunt flora no you are roger fleming's daughter gabriella flora whispered clutching her hand and eyeing her anxiously so david said gabriella murmured with a troubled glance at him to talk in this childish lifeless way aunt flora must be very ill you should have known it long ago flora repeated beating gently on gabriella's hand it was the sin the terrible sin of my life but david she interrupted herself appealing to him i did not mean to harm them i'm sure of it aunt flora but why worry yourself with it now we are all safe all well couldn't it wait david urged with infinite gentleness no 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 she exclaimed raising herself into a sitting position and struggling almost as if they were constraining her physically i must talk now and then i shall sleep you must let me talk and then i shall sleep i want you all to understand did you ever know she went on seeming to feel her way for the right phrases and sinking back into the pillows with shut eyes did you ever know how i happened to come first to wastewater my father was john fleming roger fleming's cousin he was a dentist in brookline we were very poor when i was a child and the first days i remember were of a little brookline flat and my mother sewing at a sewing machine my sister lily was a delicate little baby then lily was six years younger than i for days and days and days of rain i remember the sewing machine and the crying of the baby and my mother murmuring at the hall door to men who came about bills in the spring i had to take the baby out and sometimes the wind would chap both our faces and we would sit crying in the park it seems to me we were always cold i don't believe children get much deep impressions of hot weather dearest do you want to talk now sylvia asked tenderly as the harsh deep voice paused flora opened the eyes that had been slowly sinking shut and widened them anxiously yes i must talk she answered and she looked about the silent little group alarmedly as if she feared that one of them might have slipped away when i was eight and lily two years old she went on our father died my mother was left miserably poor and i heard enough talk then among her and her few friends to fear as only a child can fear 
actual starvation it was then that an uncle of whom we had scarcely heard came to see us that was tom fleming roger's father he had quarrelled with my father years before and as everything my father touched turned to loss so everything that tom fleming went into prospered it was a railroad venture that made his fortune finally but everything properties bonds stocks went well with him he came to my mother's poor little flat and ah my god my god whispered flora forgetting her audience as she pressed a dark hand to her eyes and speaking to herself what a day that was for me he asked my mother to bring her little girls to his country house to waste water until she should get her bearings he left money on the little red tablecloth in the dining-room my poor mother burst out crying and tried to kiss his hand a week later on a summer afternoon we got here i had never seen the inside of a big house or the open expanse of the sea before never been in a stable-yard where there were chickens and cats and horses and we had half a dozen horses at wastewater then uncle tom's big percherons and riding horses why i couldn't get enough of the stairs i worked my way up and down them for days singing to myself for pure rapture it was all a fairy tale to me the silver the meals the big rooms what a wonderland it was uncle tom was a widower with two sons boys of thirteen and eleven roger and will they were out in the stable yards with some puppies when we got there and roger was not too big a boy to take a little girl cousin under his wing he showed me the puppies he let me name one of them silver i have never seen any other puppies that were to me as strangely important as those were flora went on her eyes closed her voice the mere essence of its usual self nor such a lingering early summer afternoon as that was it seemed to me my heart would burst with joy to have supper in the pantry that was full of maids and sunshine and such supplies of cake and butter and milk and to sleep in a big smooth bed in such a great room all those early days were filled with anxiety for me i was afraid any instant that we might be sent away my mother told me long afterward that i cried myself almost sick with excitement when she told me that uncle tom had asked her to stay and take care of his house for him i don't remember that day but i remember in my gratitude telling roger that i hoped some day he would be out at sea in a wreck and that i would save his life and how he laughed at me he was i suppose as handsome a boy as ever lived it was not that surely i was too small a girl to know or care what real beauty was but i loved him from the first instant i saw him not i think now as other children love as other young girls love there was no vanity in it i can say that there was no happiness no prettiness it was agony to me almost from that first june afternoon he seemed to me to be in a class all by himself whether i liked it or not and it was years before i realized it fully i had to keep him there his least word was important his kindness made me tremble all over and if ever roger were cross with me i used to be actually sick with grief 
and my mother would ask him to come up to my room and let me sob wildly in his arms and beg him to forgive me. I never got any pleasure out of it, God knows. It was constant pain. If he smiled at anyone else, I was wretched. No matter what he did, his laugh, his voice with his horse, his use of his hands, and he had beautiful hands, was full of magic for me. I used to pray, to pray that he would not always seem so wonderful to me, that I would see him in ordinary human daylight. I never did. He was my whole world. So the years went by, and Uncle Tom died, and Roger was the heir. Roger was twenty-five then, tall and straight, and so clever that he could do anything. He rode and he sang. He danced and shot better than any of his friends. Women were already beginning. Ah, how women loved him! Will, his brother, had been wild from his very boyhood, from his fifteenth year. He drank heavily, gambled. He and his father had been enemies for a long time. Uncle Tom had advanced money to Will, great sums of it, and Will had gambled it away. He left Will a comfortable fortune. He left Roger wastewater and the rest of his money. And Roger was everything. He had a manner, a sweetness, I don't know, a way of seeming interested, seeming absorbed in what you were telling him. And he was witty, too. What parties I can remember here, when they would all be laughing at him, crying with laughter. I was twenty when Uncle Tom died. My mother went on keeping house for Roger and Will, and perhaps she thought sometimes of what I prayed and prayed might come to pass, that Roger Fleming and I might be man and wife, and wastewater her home forever. For years I had to see him depart for those long visits of his in Boston, when he was, ah, yes, it wasn't only my imagination, when he was the idol of them all, fated and followed and imitated by the very best of them. I had to say good-bye to him when he started off to Europe with beautiful girls in the party, money, youth, lovely clothes, romantic settings, all against me. Presently he was thirty, and I was twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, and then suddenly he seemed for the first time to see me. I didn't dare believe it at first. I didn't dare believe it. He would follow me down to the shore and sit there with Lily and me. He would come back unexpectedly from Boston or New York. I would hear his voice as I hear it now. Flo, where's Flo? Ah, what those days were. They seemed all rose color. I've come to hate the memory of them now, but they were heaven then. Sometimes now I find myself obliged to go over them, day after day, and hour after hour, day after day, and hour after hour of a fool's paradise. One day he said to me, one night rather, when there was gray moonlight over the garden, and he and I were walking up and down, and poor Lily, inside at the piano, was singing, Flo, why is it that I have grown to prefer puttering about this old place with you and Lil to any other thing in the world? Perhaps because you like me, Roger, I said. I've been ready to bite my tongue out for it a thousand times in these thirty years. But it brought me a few more hours of insanity then. He caught me in his arms and laughed as he kissed me. 
"'Why, that's the way of it, is it?' he said. "'How long has this been going on, eh?' "'Always,' I told him. "'Poor little Flo,' he said. "'With all you know of me, is it like that?' "'Like that,' I said, and he kissed me again. "'Well,' he said, "'we'll have to see about this.' "'That was all.' Presently I ran into the house with my heart simply singing, and all that summer night I lay awake laughing and crying for joy. The next morning I hardly dared raise my eyes to him. It was that next day that your mother came to Wastewater, David. It was the very next day. Flora had been talking with her eyes shut. Now she opened them, almost as if she were surprised to see the circle of attentive and serious young faces. Her hand beat the cover-lid restlessly. "'Your mother was about thirty and a widow,' she said. "'She had been widowed a few months before your birth, and you were only three or four weeks old. She was a beautiful woman, with reddish thick hair, all swathed in crepe, and with the trailing dresses of the tiny baby in her arms. Her father was an Argentine planter, and she was taking you, David, back to Rosario.' where she had sisters and cousins. But for some reason the boat was a month delayed. A strike, perhaps. The service was very uneven then, and she had written my mother asking if she might come for a few days to waste water. Families did more of that sort of thing then. Her husband had been a Fleming, and I remember that he had once spent a vacation with us here when he was a little boy, David Fleming. She told me a hundred times afterward that she had written my mother only because she was so lonely and sad in the big city. She hardly expected an answer. She knew that Tom Fleming was dead. She hardly knew anything about Roger and Will. So she came here, not six months a widow, and from the instant she got here, Roger Fleming was a changed being. I never saw a man so instantly possessed. The very first night he was asking me, Isn't she beautiful, Flo? Isn't she wonderful? He hung about her. I don't think he ever thought of me again, or of anything but Janet. Seven weeks later they were married. She was beautiful, Flora went on, after a dead silence in which none of the young persons seemed to find the right word, and in which her hand beat steadily on the bed, and her eyes were shut. She went with him to Boston, Washington, everywhere. And ten months later she gave him a son, Tom. She looked at Tom strangely, closed her eyes again. My mother, all this while, Flora resumed, had been like a sort of housekeeper. She was a little, wiry woman, very gray, as poor Lily was, at the end. Two years after Roger and Janet were married, my mother died, and then Lily and I felt keenly what our exact position here was, poor relations in a rich man's house. Roger always was generous to us. He was the soul of generosity, and he was prospering as steadily as his father had. And Janet was kind, too. She and Roger sometimes went away for weeks and left the two little boys with us, and I remember more than once Roger telling me that it was only my influence that kept his brother Will straight at all. Will was like many a young man in those times. He would have a position for a while, give it up for different reasons, drink and gamble and idle for a while, and be persuaded into another position again. 
it wasn't considered disgraceful then. He was a sweet, good-natured sort of fellow. He would spend weeks here at Wastewater, perfectly willing to idle about with Lily and Janet and me, and the babies, for David was hardly more, and to have a little pocket money from Roger. And then he would go over to Keyport or Crochester and be there whole days, drinking and playing poker. Sylvia drew a quick, sharp breath. "'You mustn't judge your father too harshly,' Flora whispered, moving her troubled eyes to her daughter's face. "'Nowadays it sounds far worse than it did then. Almost every family had such a son, and frequently you would hear even mothers laughing as they said it was time for Dick or Jack to marry and settle down. Afterward, Will would be two or three days sick in bed.' the droning, weary voice presently resumed, and Roger would talk to him so kindly, begging him to pull himself together and get a new start. And then Roger would find him a new position, and Will would come down to dinner, rested and shaved and well-dressed and in high spirits, telling us all how rich he was going to be. So I tried to make myself indispensable, and I hoped and hoped that Lily would marry, marry Will or anybody, as a sort of justification for my remaining single. I looked out for you boys' wardrobes, mothered Will, managed their parties, managed the servants. Your mother, Janet, went to the opera with your father one night, she added, opening her eyes to look at David and Tom, and a day or two later he telegraphed me from New York that, as she was not well, he would keep her there until it was safe to bring her home. That was a snowy Sunday afternoon. I remember that Will and Lily and I played games with you little fellows, put you to bed ourselves. It was almost as if we knew that you were not to see your mother again. The days went by. You went back to school, and I knew, I knew all the time that it was the end. Ten days later your mother died, and the day after the funeral Roger went away, where I never knew. He was gone for weeks, came home, would burst out into bitter crying at the table, walk up and down the garden like a madman, and be off again. One day, about six or seven weeks after Janet's death, he said to me in a dark, moody sort of tone, Flo, how long am I to wear mourning? Outside. Inside, he said passionately. I shall mourn her all my life. A year, I told him. It was a dark, misty day, I remember, with the garden full of thick, cold fog, and lights burning at the lunch-table. He and I had come out and were walking along the cliff road in the mist. We could hear the boys ringing, ringing away toward Keyport. Flo, he said, when that time is up, will you forgive me and marry me? You and I understand each other. I want to be anchored. I want to be done with the world and make this my world. And he looked back toward the garden and the house. Gladly, Roger, I said. And for a long while we did not speak again. Then he said to me, Will you tell Lillian the boys and Will that it is to be that way? And I said yes. You remember, David? Yes, I remember your telling us that you were to be married to him. David's voice said, strangely vital against that other monotonous voice. Sometimes, but not often, we would talk of it quietly, Flora resumed. 
not that i was ever happy about it but i told myself i would be i told myself that it should it must mean happiness to us both janet died in january this was perhaps march a few days later in april a mrs kent whom roger had admired immensely as a beautiful girl when he was hardly more than a boy when he was in fact in college came here with her daughter for a visit i don't think the mother was more than thirty-seven or eight she had been a great belle and had married at eighteen she was plump and pretty covered with jewels full of life and had left her husband and little boy in canada to bring this child from a school in baltimore she had just this hair flora said laying her dark thin hand upon gabriella's tawny rich masses as the girl knelt beside her the girl cecily was seventeen dark and pale-faced she looked like a child she had her hair in a braid there were other old friends in the party a group of them had come down from boston to see roger fleming and were very gay i don't know that i ever heard greater laughing or chattering here or that we ever served more formal meals i had my hands full lily saw more of little cecily kent than i did and she told me one day not that it interested me particularly then that the girl had been attending a convent in montreal and longed to be a nun and that her mother had said that she would rather see her dead they were only here a short week it was spring and there were walks and picnics and bridge and music and billiards the time flew by and it was on the afternoon when the kents were going their baggage in the hall and when the other guests had gone that cecily kent burst out crying and roger put his arm about her the moment i saw that my heart turned to water that moment flora said with sudden bitter violence raising herself upon her elbow all my hopes died all my trust in him it was my curse that i could not stop loving him as well the cold winter sunset streaming through the bare woods beyond the stable-yard shone red upon the cheap cheerful paper of the walls and struck flora's grizzled hair with a tinge of blood and shadowed clearly behind her the hand she raised they had already been man and wife forty-eight hours she said i think roger fleming felt remorse for the first time in his life when he saw the mother's face perhaps life had always been too easy for him perhaps it had really never occurred to him that a few months a widower and with his two little sons and with his forty years he might not be thought an ideal match for a dreamy girl of seventeen he had always been so courted so wanted at first mrs kent talked of annulling the marriage she was more like a woman suddenly smitten with insanity than anyone i ever saw before or since she grasped the girl by the arm and her eyes blazed and her face was ashen no she said you shall not have her she's hardly more than a baby she knows nothing of life mamma cecily said crying and clinging to her we were married two days ago i am his wife i remember the mother looking at her and the terrible silence there was in the hall lily began to whimper beside me and i caught her by the wrist there were servants staring from the dining-room doorway you sissy 
mrs kent said in a whisper cecily went down on her knees sobbing almost screaming like a child and caught her mother about her knees cecily roger said trying to raise her you are mine now your mother cannot hurt you you are my wife oh let me go with my mother she sobbed i hate you she is in fact your wife mrs kent said looking over cecily's head at him roger nodded then you must stay with your husband my child mrs kent said very gravely and may god punish you through your children roger fleming she said for what you have done to mine go tear the buds from those rose trees she said pointing to the garden go strip the new green fruit from your trees and you will harvest what you must harvest now your little boys there playing in the drive are better fitted for life than she is and she turned to moses the colored butler we had then moses put my bags in the carriage she said nobody spoke as she went away cecily lay on the floor moaning roger on one knee beside her talking naturally and kindly she never saw her mother or her father or her brother again i heard long afterward that the pretty cheerful mother had died and the father married again they they would be your people gabriella you could easily trace them cecily had been three days a wife but she had lost her husband then she never knew it but i did and i god forgive me i was glad when she clung to her mother and screamed that she hated him a look came into roger fleming's face that only i could understand it was as if she had said i'm seventeen and he is forty i knew nothing he knew everything my only loves were a daughter's love a sister's love he demanded more of me and if i had it i would loathe myself for giving it he has robbed me of my mother and my father and my body and my soul she cried all that night would not come downstairs or eat or look at him or talk to him she cried for many days and roger used all his patience and all his kindness trying to console her but he never gave her love again he never had it to give after that day she had cut him to the very heart and the flemings are all proud and none of them ever prouder than he after a while she began to slip about the house like a shadow she had never been pretty except for her eyes that were like gabriella's here and she grew so thin and so white that she seemed all eyes she would have no company no entertaining she seemed even to dread talking to roger and was fondest of you children and poor lily it was never any definite illness at first just the doctor for one pain or another and roger taking her in for consultations and advice they all gave the same advice she needed amusement and relief from mental strain but that was one thing he couldn't buy her she used to lay out there in the garden telling lily about her mother and father end of chapter eighteen part one
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.